When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, as if you don't know it by now, I'm pretty thrilled to be setting up some new tanks in my home office, and among them is my sort of version 2.0 brackish water mangrove aquarium. The stated mission of this tank is to encourage my fellow hobbyists to give brackish a go, or our concept of brackish a go, that is, and yet, despite its more dirty or natural interpretation of brackish, I think it's a more accessible, purposeful, honest version than what's typically executed in the hobby. I say honest because we're not trying to make uh, to take a you know pure freshwater mindset into this. We're trying to create a brackish water ecosystem. It's different, and I think it'll make this approach much more enjoyable and an exciting way to execute it. Because it won't force fit fishes or ideas or plants or whatever into this approach. It's not being set up to try to wing it with table salt, a few stones or whatever, or try to do it on the cheap. Rather, it's embracing the functional aspects of the brackish water habitat, focusing on the ecology first. The aesthetics are going to follow. It's sort of time to big up the estuary concept that we've been playing with for quite a few years here. Now, traditionally in the aquarium hobby... When you've mentioned that you're thinking of trying a brackish water aquarium, it's provoked little more than a raised eyebrow or a feigned level of interest from fellow fish geeks, and I can kind of see why. Although aquarists have been playing with brackish tanks for decades, in my opinion, what's been missing is a focus on the actual habitat that we're interested in and how it functions. Function, yeah, that's something that we've long been obsessed with around here, right? So my obsession led me to launch Estuary by Tannin Aquatics in 2016. It was sort of aligned within the Tannin brand dedicated to the sort of the art and science of brackish water aquariums. And when we launched this, I knew full well that there would be like, I don't know, 27 hobbyists in the world who would have shown even a whiff of interest in the topic. And that was just part of the challenge. And I realized much like when we launched Tannin, you know, the mothership of Tannin and attacked blackwater aquariums with a different mindset and a different approach, it would take some time to catch on. And I'm pleased to say that it is catching on slowly but surely. Now, first off, the hardest thing that we've had to do and continue to do is to change the perception among hobbyists that brackish water biotopes are stark white sandy places with, you know, a few rocks and that's it. No, no, no. Actually, many brackish water estuaries and lagoons are way different than we portrayed them in our aquariums over the years. They're often turbid, brown-tinted, silty, with muddy, rich bottoms covered with decomposing leaves, lots of leaves, you know, lots of micro and macroalgae, some, maybe some uh, grasses, and often dominated by uh, overhanging palms and, of course, mangroves. And I've heard the warnings from people about attempting to replicate this in the aquarium. You know, it won't work in a brackish tank. It'll create anaerobic conditions, uh, too much, you know, ionic imbalance and nutrients. Uh, tinted water means dirty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this sounds oddly familiar, doesn't it? And look, unlike many of the prognosticators who predict doom and gloom and who insist this can't work or that the functional aspects of these habitats that we're obsessed with can't be recreated in the aquariums, 
I believe that they're perfect for rep, you know, replication and I've done it. And yeah, I've actually been to quite a few of these habitats myself over the years, Dipnet, Refractometer, and ORP tester in hand, and I have the cuts, the bruises, and the insect bites to prove it. I've gotten up close and personal with mangroves, with mud, and many of the wonderful organisms which call the mangal, which is a mangrove environment, home. Trust me, these are way, way different than how we've traditionally portrayed brackish water habitats in the aquarium. There is a very serious disconnect that has always sort of left me scratching my head, really. Now, although there's a good amount of information on brackish water habitats from which, you know, brackish water fishes come from, in the hobby, with the rare exception of maybe some biosope enthusiasts, we've sort of distilled brackish water aquarium aesthetics down to white aragonite sand, a, a few rocks, and maybe some hardy freshwater plants, and I say that in air quotes, and it's been mired in that aesthetic hell for decades. Just like what the hobby was doing in Blackwater for years, I think we've been collectively focusing on the wrong part of the equation for a long time. Just, you know, salt and basic aesthetics, and then on to fishes. And quite honestly, the information, although it's out there, has not been presented well, as evidenced by the numerous, numerous questions on, you know, Facebook user groups and forums of just some of the most, I, I'm sorry, I, I have to say it literally, some of the most ignorant sounding questions I've ever heard about. Can you use table salt for this? Or why do I have to use, uh, you know, such and such a rock? Well, who said you have to? Or what kind of plants can I keep? I mean, all this kind of stuff. And the wrong fishes, too, are something that we've been focusing on. Yeah, you know, big old puffers, scats, monos, and eels. Fishes that, although interesting, require large aquariums to keep successfully for any length of time. The size of the preferred, and I say that again in air quotes, the size of the preferred fishes alone, I'll bet, has kept many aquarists from venturing into brackish. They're just too big. I personally believe not that many hobbyists really want to dedicate a 200-gallon tank to some big, gray, messy fishes, a few rocks, and some struggling freshwater plants or worse. However, I'll bet that a lot of hobbyists might just want to dedicate a 15- to 40-gallon aquarium to smaller, interesting brackish water fishes and some hardy mangroves. Our approach to brackish is a little different than the, you know, throw in a couple of rocks and white sand, a few teaspoons of salt per gallon, monos and mollies, and you're good to go idea that you've seen, you know, percolating forever in the hobby literature and on YouTube and all that stuff. As you suspect, our approach is to really take a look at the function and the appearance of these unique aquatic habitats and then construct aquariums which mimic these factors in a unique and more compelling way. Now, to do this, we really want to focus on helping you replicate and understand the complex web of life that occurs in brackish water habitats and how you can replicate parts of it in the aquarium. And quite honestly, the hobby knowledge base on the wild brackish water habitats and how dynamic and diverse and interesting and yeah, awesome looking these hobbies, these habitats are, has been sadly lacking. So witness the rise of a more natural approach, the botanical method brackish water aquarium. And I use the botanical method term loosely because it's a system that embraces natural processes and functionality and just happens to have a slightly different aesthetic too. Less emphasis on sterile white sand and crystal clear water, and more of an emphasis on a functional representation of a tropical brackish water ecosystem. Muddy, nutrient-rich, filled with mangrove leaves, and perhaps stained a bit from tannins and fallen mangrove leaves. Beautiful in a very different, yet oddly compelling way. So how's this all work? Ridiculously easy, really. The toughest part, as usual, is making the mental shifts to accept a different approach. And it all starts with my approach to substrate and the mangroves which grow in it. Mangrove soils are an interesting nutrient-rich mix of marine alluvium transported as sediment and then deposited by rivers and the ocean tides. And the soils are made up of 
you know, sand, silt, and clay in various combinations. And mangrove soils are typically saline, anoxic, often acidic, and frequently waterlogged. It's a, it's a real cocktail of variables, right? Now, you often hear the substrate in these habitats referred to as mud. In this context, of course, mud actually refers to a mixture of silt and clay, both of which are rich in organic matter. The topsoil is a combination of sand or clay. Now, interestingly, the light-colored topsoils consisting largely of sand are pretty well aerated. The clay-like topsoils are far less aerated. So it's interesting. There's two different types of soils, and some are aerated, some aren't. Interesting? Well, it is. In a recent study of these habitats, which I stumbled on, the researchers concluded that the composition into typical mangrove habitat was as follows. And if you're into substrates, you'll listen to me on this one. Quote, overall sediment proportion of main fractions is 59% for silt, 21% for sand, and 20% for clay. There, I give you a recipe. Of course, this has some implication for those of us who are trying to recreate this type of habitat in our aquariums, doesn't it? It does. Mangrove habitats are usually enclosed and protected environments with lower energy waters, which is conducive to sedimentation of clay particles. Now, confusing the matter a little bit further is that various studies of typical mangrove forests worldwide have revealed that mangrove soils may be either acidic or alkaline, depending upon the materials deposited within them. In mangrove soils, nitrogen is considered the primary nutrient that affects species composition and mangrove population density. Now, further analysis found that nitrogen and phosphate influence structure and composition in approximately equal proportions. Potassium is beneficial for mangrove growth, yet vitally important in highly saline environments as it impacts the osmotic regulation that occurs within the mangroves themselves. So takeaway here, if you're keeping mangroves in really salty conditions like ocean conditions, perhaps dosing a fertilizer containing potassium might be quite beneficial. I'm just saying. Now, we talk in general terms about mangrove soils being nutrient-rich, and they are for the most part. However, there's significant variabilities because of the dynamics of the mangrove habitat, as we just talked about. Although some mangrove soils have extremely low nutrient availability, this factor you know, varies greatly between mangroves and also within a mangrove stand. In other words, the mangroves themselves actually influence these factors. That's really cool. In general, it's understood by ecologists that nutrient-rich silty sediments produced faster growth of mangrove seedlings, which is vital in this important ecosystem and of extreme interest to those of us who wish to sprout and grow mangrove propagals in the aquarium. And of course, the leaves which mangroves regularly drop not only form an interesting aesthetic and structural component of the habitat and therefore the aquarium, they contribute to the overall biological diversity and richness of the habitat. So let's talk about plants for just a second. I might go on a little mini rant. In fact, this is a little rant that'll likely alienate me from pretty much every YouTube aquarium channel and hobby forum out there. But really, some of these things are, that are simply important to me, they, they, they simply have to be said. And since I don't really care if I take some heat for it, let me just say it. Why are we so insistent on keeping freshwater aquatic plants in our brackish water aquariums? Seriously, one of the top questions that I see on like every brackish water forum, Facebook group, or YouTube video is, what kinds of aquarium plants can I keep in brackish water? I freaking hate that question. Now why? Well, because it belies a fundamental unwillingness of us as hobbyists to let go of what we know and embrace something different. I mean, you're obviously new to the brackish world, so why try to bring along your old freshwater baggage with you? Just enjoy the difference. Sure, you hear a lot that, you know, Amazon swords, Anubias, Java fern, and a few other hardy plants, and I hardy again in air quotes, you know, may hang on in slightly brackish water, like say up to 1.03 specific gravity. They may or may not do okay long term. 
And yeah, the elusive and huge cryptocurrency ciliata is known to actually be found in areas where there may be a very low salt content, but I think I've seen that, I've seen one, like one brackish water aquarium with cryptocurrency ciliata in it in the past 10 years. So anyway, why do this? Why force fit freshwater aquatic plants into our brackish water aquariums? That's the whole, you know, well, the whatever fish or plant can adapt to, you know, insert your desired water parameter here, you know, to adapt to these conditions. So why, why can't I keep it in their argument? It's dumb. I mean, sure, the plant can adapt. You can adapt to living in a three meter cube at 105 degrees Fahrenheit for the rest of your life too. But would you want to? Would you be at your best? How do you think that would work out long term? Want my advice? I'm probably not at this point, but just give up the idea of keeping freshwater plants in your brackish water aquarium. Ditch the idiotic YouTube take to brackish and tell the next content producer, and I say that in air quotes, who recommends that you use, you know, these kind of plants or whatever, just tell them to shove it. Seriously, approach this differently. Stop trying to force fit this. All you're trying to do is force freshwater plants, which have developed a reputation for being hardy, to adapt to an environment which is utterly alien for them. Sure, they may survive for some period of time, but they're usually not thriving. Now, of course, somebody out there is going to send me a video of your tank, which has, you know, a specific gravity of 1.05 and has you know, an obscene number of healthy Amazon swords and Anubias thriving as they have for the last five years for you. But I assure you that you're the exception rather than the rule. You couldn't seriously recommend keeping them in this way to somebody else, or could you? Maybe you can, but really, have you ever seen a public aquarium representation of a brackish water habitat which contain Anubias or swords? Probably not. If you have seen plants in this display, they're likely riparian grasses, which are salt and emergent growth tolerant, and usually if there's any plants at all, they're mangroves or just mangrove roots or simulations of mangrove roots. And before you bring it up, seagrasses and macroalgae, which again, I see a lot of questions about that. They can't typically survive for any length of time under less than natural seawater conditions. So specific gravity, 1.025, 1.024, 1.021, something like that. So instead, you're going to need to find species that are found in intertidal zones like mud flats and estuaries, which have brackish water. They're out there, but they're pretty hard to find in the trade. So yeah, lose the whole, I want to keep aquatic plants in my brackish water aquarium thing. Like honestly, where in nature have you seen a documented wild population of Amazon sword plants growing in a brackish water habitat? You haven't. I will bet you anything you haven't. So why bother? And really the funny thing to me is that when I search these YouTube videos where some content producer is sharing his or her brackish water aquarium, it almost always features one or more of these varieties of plants and most of the specimens appear to be in average health at best. And in the ultimate ironic twist, they're being kept in tanks with fishes like scats, which are known to tear up plants, or even puffers, which are equally ridiculous with plants. So, like, why? Why? If you're going to try something different, approach it differently. Make the effort to understand what's found in these habitats in nature. Think about how you can replicate the function. I mean, oh my god, can we just agree as a hobby to stand down from producing any more of these mostly pathetic absurd representations of brackish water habitats, which are just all over the internet. Please, I know this is not making me popular, but God, there's some awful stuff out there. Educate yourself by researching, not by watching some awful amateur hour interpretation of brackish, but educate yourself by studying the habitat. Take a few minutes and look at some real brackish water habitats, what they really look like, what's actually found in them, how they function, and why they function the way they do. Stop using those lousy YouTube versions of somebody's watered-down, aquarium-sanitized interpretation of what you're supposed to have in a brackish water aquarium as your model. Read. Research outside of the aquarium world. You can do this. Yeah, take your inspiration from nature. Okay. Okay. 
that's that's pretty solid. I pretty much destroyed pretty much everybody that's ever produced a brackish water aquarium video. And I, I apologize for those of you that actually did it the right way, but let's be serious with ourselves. Think about what I said. I think there's a lot of good in that in that in that little aggressive argument. There's actually a few pearls of wisdom there. And why not take some time to learn about mangroves? Now, there's more than 50 species of mangroves found throughout the world. Mangroves thrive in oxygen-deprived sediments, which would certainly spell doom for most plants. They have evolved certain morphological and physiological responses, which allow them to survive in these really harsh environmental conditions. They employ a sort of internal ionic regulation. The red mangrove, which we tend to feature here, Rhizophora mangle, it's the most common one we encounter in the hobby, is known to botanists as a salt excluder, which separates freshwater at the root surface by creating a type of non-metabolic filtration system. The process of transpiration, which is exhalation of water vapor at the leaf surface, creates negative pressure in the xylem, that's that vascular tissue in the plants that conducts water and dissolved nutrients upward from the root. So this causes a type of reverse osmosis to occur at the root surface. The salt concentration of xylem sap in the red mangroves has been found to be about 170th of the surrounding seawater. But this is 10 times higher than in normal plants. The red mangrove stores and disposes of excess salt in the leaves and the fruit, which is one reason why we spray their leaves down regularly, which helps avoid salt buildup on their surfaces. Yeah, mangroves are incredibly adaptable. They're not immortal, they're just incredibly adaptable. I've kept them for decades in all sorts of aquariums, reefs, brackish, freshwater, and even blackwater. The predominant species found in freshwater habitats is a species called Barringtonia acutilanga. It's definitely one you will not likely see in the aquarium hobby. You might not even know that mangroves don't require salt water to survive. In fact, most mangroves are capable of growing perfectly fine in freshwater habitats, although most do not in the wild because of competition from other plants. However, some species do need salt to grow and complete their life cycle. Mangroves are halophytes, salt-tolerant plants, and they maintain sufficient fresh water inside their cells and tissues to maintain metabolic function against that higher osmotic pressure in the exterior root environment, like we talked about just now. And that can vary between fresh water and up to three times seawater concentration. They're very hardy. They, they can often function in intertidal areas with evaporation. It's pretty cool. They've evolved some remarkable survival techniques, including specialized reproductive strategies in which the seeds don't go through a dormant phase and are viviparous. They germinate while they're still attached to the parent plant. And these little seedlings, known as propagals, those things that look like little cucumbers or pickles, they're buoyant, they're photosynthetically capable, and they're often transported in tidal and ocean currents, sometimes over really significant different, you know, distances, miles and miles. And it's pretty cool. Mangrove trees are able to withstand remarkable tidal changes, from partially submerged to completely exposed, and then back all in the course of a day. Mangroves are part of a highly diverse ecosystem. The productivity of mangrove habitats is really important for supporting food webs. You know, we're into food webs, right? The productivity of mangrove forests can be equivalent to the most productive terrestrial forests. Mangroves are perfectly suited for their role as producers and host enormous amounts of life within their structure. Because mangrove forests, sometimes called mangles, are typically mud or peat-based systems, prop roots, those roots we just talked about, provide the hard substrate essential for settlement by many sessile organisms. This is also evident in the aquarium. You'll see snails and clams and things like that attached to them. Let's talk about some practical aspects of keeping mangroves in your brackish water aquarium. Let's get out of that nature bit for, for a little bit and get to the practical here. Now, first off, have some realistic expectations. These are trees, they're big ass trees. They grow really slowly. My 18 to 24 inch seedlings that you may see in my videos uh, are over three years old. When you grow them from propagals, as I did, it takes time. You have to be patient. 
And the other important thing with mangroves in captivity is not to mess with them too much. Like, if you plan on keeping them in full-strength marine water as seedlings, sprout your propagals in full-strength marine water. If you're keeping them in brackish, sprout them in brackish, etc. Yeah, they are found in intertidal locales, subject to those changes in salinity in the course of a single day, but that's in the wild. Of course, they can tolerate changes in salinity and captive propagation if done slowly, but you don't want to make this a regular thing. They don't like to be messed with. Unlike typical aquarium plants, mangroves are not, you know, window dressing. They're the literal stars of the show, and they should be the life form that you're building your tank around if you're doing a brackish water mangrove habitat. It makes the effort to meet their needs and the entire aquarium and all of its inhabitants that much more interesting, and it'll be better off, trust me. Oh, and far be it from me not to scold myself, by the way, when it's deserved. One thing I did with my new version of my mangrove tank is I overdid it with mangroves. I have way too many in there to create a a realistically sustainable long-term situation. I have like seven seedlings in this small 25-gallon tank. That's a good chunk of my mangrove collection, all of which I grew, again, from propagals that I collected in Florida. But they're almost sentimental to me, like I'm ridiculously attached to them. But this is not really great. My mistake was keeping these mangroves together in small containers for too long as they began to establish their little buttress roots and not pruning them extensively or as frequently as I should have. They became really tall and leafy with relatively small root system, something that would come back to haunt me when I tried to place them in substrate, trust me. And as a result of keeping them like a bouquet in a little vase, their roots ultimately became an intertwined mess, which took a long time and some careful surgery to disentangle prior to planting them with proper separation in the new tank. Now here's the deal. Again, mangroves are trees. They can become enormous in the wild. With that being said, this is a small aquarium in suburban Los Angeles, not a mangle in Southeast Asia, and mangroves grow pretty slowly, like really slowly. And you can manage their growth by frequent pruning, almost sort of bonsaiing them. Now, I'm not super in love with this practice, sustainable though it may be. I just, I don't know, I feel weird trimming them, but it's the best way to manage them long term if you don't want to have, you know, don't have tropical estuary acreage somewhere to put your mangles, your mangroves. Now, many hobbyists, myself included, have employed this practice over the years to keep mangroves in modest setups for many, many years. And let's be honest, having a few sets of those cool prop roots in my tanks is a cool, cool look. And just having one small mangrove isn't going to cut it, in my opinion. These guys are three years old. To get that substantial root system to fill even this modest aquarium could take another two or three years. And that's too much even for me. So yeah, I overdid it. I have more mangroves in my little tank than I'd recommend. And they are a little bit pissed off at me at the moment because I've moved them around for the third time in a year and a half. But again, word of advice, once you get your mangrove set, try to disturb them as little as possible. They do bounce back. That being said, if managed the way I described, it can work just fine. It's just not something that I'm particularly proud of. Of course, I'm way prouder of employing too many mangroves than I would be trying to force fit Anubias or Amazon swords or freshwater plants into my display. Okay, I can go on and on and on, but... What about smaller fishes and stuff like that? Well, you know what? That's a fun one. We're going to cover that in the next installment of the tint when we do this. So I'm going to leave you with this long-winded lecture on mangroves and how shitty most brackish water aquariums are. Just That's enough stuff to enlighten you, piss you off, and confuse you all at once. So do a little uh, research on this stuff. I think you might find it interesting. And look back at some of our older articles in the tint on the, on the website on the po- and uh, some older podcasts where we talked about mangroves. A lot of good information in there. But in the meantime, thanks for listening to me. I look forward to seeing you guys all on the next installment of The Tint.